Live from the Mecca of Mormonism, Salt Lake City, Utah, this is Heart of the Matter. Thanks for tuning in. I am your host, Sean McCraney, if you've never watched the show before. And uh, we have some in-studio guests, and I didn't get their names completely before, so I'm sorry to them. Uh, happy birthday, Calvin, Rob, Calvin R. I don't know what birthday it is, probably about his 10th or 11th. So happy birthday, Calvin. A shout-out to Wayne Polika, my great friend who's a great Christian A.J. Polizzi, a math whiz at Tulane. Shannon, who recently came to know the Lord. We praise God. Graydon, a fan who watches weekly from his home with his parents. Micah is uh, still in need of a liver. We had some uh, things happen. Very sick. Our prayers still go out with you, Micah. And, um, and Becky, you're, uh, his mom. Uh, there is going to be an annual homeschool convention. If you want information on that, just go to www.utch.org. It's an annual Everything We Need homeschool convention. So if you are interested in homeschooling your children, pulling them out of those public schools, go to www.utch.org and you can learn more about uh, that convention. In my hands, Born Again Mormon, Moving Toward Christian Authenticity. You can obtain this book in a number of ways. First and foremost, you can go to Benchmark Books here in Salt Lake, Christian Gift and Bible, Oasis Books in Logan, Calvary Chapel, Salt Lake City Bookstore. You can also go to www.bornagainmormon.com. Click on the book or getting the book or something like that. You can order it through PayPal. It should be selling at all these places for $9.99 or less. If you can't afford the $9.99, email us and we'll send you the book for free. Uh, complimentary so you can read it. I have four very important things for you to consider. Actually, I have three very important things for you to consider. First, numero uno, Monday night and Friday night. Monday night's at 9.30, Friday night's at 8.30. We have a show called The Infallible Word. And it's a half-hour program where we go verse by verse through the Gospel of John. That's where we started. If you want to learn the Bible better, open up your Bible, turn on your TV at those times, and you can join us in a verse-by-verse, exegetical, inductive study of the Bible. And I highly suggest it. Numero dos. Next Tuesday evening, uh, no, uh, next Wednesday evening, March 7th at 7 p.m., Wednesday evening, March 7th, 7 p.m. at Christ Evangelical Church in Provo, Utah. Uh, We're going to have a heart in the church there. All are welcome. If you're LDS, please come. If you're Christian, come. If you're nothing, come. And just bring your questions, bring your spirit, and let's uh, talk. So, and finally, number four, pencil in the week of July 7th and 8th, the weekend, July 7th and 8th for Heart in the Park. We're bringing in some great music and it'll be a great time. If you're planning your vacations for the summer, remember that day. Okay, uh, we are going to have a word of prayer and get right into what I think is probably the most important message we're going to have of this year. Dear Lord, we ask you to be with us, uh, be with the viewers at home uh, who are searching for truth and help me to speak the message you want me to speak. And, uh, and bless our crew and everyone else in need of prayer, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. As I said, I don't think that we could have a more important show. And, um, and so I hope that you'll check the references I give you. I have to read several quotes through this show. 
Be patient with me, but listen closely to the quotes that I read to you and put this all into context because it's going to be very important. Because of its importance in Mormonism, it's going to be important to your understanding truth. Have you ever heard someone say, you can't cheat an honest man? Have you ever heard that phrase? It usually means that when someone gets cheated, they had motives in their heart that opened them up to being cheated. Con men and women, grifters and scam artists and players are very successful because they promise people things that seem too good to be true. They base these things on their ego, on what the victim's ego and greed and pride are looking for, and these scam artists know that human nature wants something that seems too good to be true. Con men and women commit fraud by making exorbitant promises of certainty where certainty just does not exist, by offering the highest returns on an investment that seemed just impossible, too good to be true. Scam artists exist by this kind of thing. They promise revelations and high hopes and the ability to possess and obtain the unknowable. In June of 1998, in the Deseret News, page 7, LDS President Gordon B. Hinckley said that the Mormon Church is, and I quote, the only true and living church upon the face of the whole earth. That's a quote. This is an extreme claim. Later, while visiting Switzerland, Gordon B. Hinckley, when asked if he believed in the traditional Christ, said, and I quote, No, I don't. The traditional Christ of whom they speak is not the Christ of whom I speak. For the Christ of whom I speak has been revealed in the dispensation of the fullness of times. He, together with his father appeared to the boy Joseph Smith in the year 1820, and when Joseph left the grove that day, he knew more of the nature of God than all the learned ministers of the gospel of all the ages. Listen to that declaration, that Joseph Smith, as a 14-year-old boy in 1820, he says, when he left this grove, he knew more about the nature of God than all the learned ministers of the gospel of all the ages. That's what Gordon B. Hinckley said. Another very aggressive and extreme claim. Speaking of Joseph Smith's first vision, Hinckley later said in October 7th of 2002 in the Salt Lake Tribune, and I quote again, Our whole strength rests on the validity of that first vision. It either occurred or it did not occur. If it did not, then this work is a fraud. If it did then it is the most wonderful and important work under the heavens. Okay? So it's either this or that. It's this or it's that. That's, that's the way he's laid it out. The prophet of the LDS church in an attitude of what I believe is no one can prove the first vision false states that if the first vision occurred... It is the most important thing under heaven to have happened, but if it didn't, then it is a big fraud. The whole thing is a fraud. So I take this directive as a test, to test and challenge the evidence. How can we tell if Joseph Smith's claims of a first vision is genuine or fraudulent? How can we discern the truth from error, the hyperbole from reliability, the con from the trustworthy? I suggest we can discover the reality 
in the same manner a detective can tell if a criminal is telling the truth. By their testimony, by the proofs they provide, by the things they say over a period of time. Gordon B. Hinckley is not the first prophet of the Mormon church to lay out an if-then argument uh, of whether Joseph Smith was a fraud. In Doctrines of Salvation, Volume 1, page 188, President Joseph Fielding Smith gave an even better either-or for the members of the church. And he said this, now listen closely. Mormonism, as it is called, must stand or fall on the story of Joseph Smith. He was either a prophet of God, divinely called, properly appointed and commissioned, or he was one of the biggest frauds this world has ever seen. There is no middle ground. Okay? Still quoting, If Joseph Smith was a deceiver who willfully attempted to deceive people, then he should be exposed. His claims should be refuted and his doctrines should be shown false. For the doctrines of an imposter cannot be made to harmonize in all the particulars with divine truth. Still the quote, If his claims and declarations were built upon deceit and fraud, it would be easy to find errors and contradictions. Okay? So you have it thrown down here by the LDS prophets. They have said it should be proven a fraud if it's a fraud. He should be proven deceitful if you could. Now, I want you to know that Joseph Fielding Smith, when he said that, there was no internet and there was very little of the research and stuff that we have today. All right, now we have a bunch of verifiable information that I'm going to share with you that's going to blow your mind when we talk about the fraud that has been perpetrated upon you relative to the first vision. Okay, so listen closely, believe me or not, but check it out. Go to utlm.org if you want to look at facts about this. She gives them all and so do another other books. If you want those, you can email me and talk to us. So we're faced with a challenge. There's no middle ground, they say. Mormonism claims that it's the only true church on the face of this earth. It cl Gordon B. Hinckley claims that Mormonism, listen to this quote, has a perfect knowledge of the nature of God, which came through the first vision of Joseph Smith, end quote. And remember that Gordon B. Hinckley also said, quote, when Joseph left the grove that day, he knew more about the nature of God than all the learned ministers of the gospel of all ages. Okay. So we're going to examine these things tonight. Now, in a court of law, one of the most reliable ways to tell if a trustworthy, if a person or a witness is trustworthy is by the consistency of their story. You will often hear detectives and police people on TV or the news say, you know, we got suspicious when the suspects started changing their story. Or, or quote, when they started adding in details that we had never heard of before, we knew something was wrong. That's what they do, simple detectives in determining truth, the fraudulence or the truth of a story. Is the original story changing over time? As parents, we know to, to think something fishy is going on when our children start changing their story that they're giving us. As a parent, you know that's true. And as liars, everybody has probably told a lie, you know that it's very important to give a story and stick to that story because that's how you convince people, con, that's how you convince them that what you're saying is true. When the story gets altered, you start to be proven an idiot and a liar. Now, Joseph Smith's first vision was vital to Mormonism in a number of in two very important ways. We're going to discover one of those ways tonight. First, it establishes his credibility as a prophet or as a fraud. All right. Secondly, the first vision 
it determines how Mormonism understands the nature of God. Mormons claim that God has a body of flesh and bone because of this first vision. And this is to told the world over in Mormonism, God has a body because Joseph, when he was a 14-year-old boy, saw him and he had this body of flesh and bone. So those are two very important reasons. Tonight, we're just going to talk about the first reason, which is Joseph Smith's credibility as being truthful or not. Next week, we'll cover the version of God, okay? All right. To give some bearings, it's important to hear the official version of the first vision as it's told by the LDS Church today. This is the standard story the church tells in their meetings. This is what the missionaries tell you when they knock on your door. I can almost give it verbatim from learning it on my mission. When Joseph Smith was a 14-year-old boy in 1820, he uh, found that there were many churches fighting in the area. This is a common thing they teach their missionaries to re repeat and recite. It comes from the Pearl of Great Price in the history of Joseph Smith, and it's part of their canon. It's part of their doctrine. This is the official story. In 1820, when Joseph Smith was a 14-year-old boy, there was no small stir, quote, among the people of his community who were debating which church was true. Joseph himself described it as a time of religious revival where, quote, Methodists, Presbyterians, and Baptists were, quote, in the midst of a war and tumult of opinions. Joseph wrote that, quote, I often ask myself, what is to be done? All right. After reading a powerful passage in James 1.5, he retired to a grove of trees to pray. While in prayer, he says he was overcome by a dark but powerful spirit. And then when he thought he was going to be destroyed by this dark spirit, a light appeared exactly over his head, which was brighter than the noonday sun. Quote. Joseph Smith rec recorded, and this is his quote, When the light rested upon me, I saw two personages whose brightness and glory defy all descriptions standing above me in the air. One of them spoke unto me, calling me by name, and said, pointing to the other, This is my beloved son, hear him. Okay. Now remember, this is the official version found in their scripture, the Pearl of Great Price, and this is what Mormons are taught today. If you join the church in the past 15, 20, 30 years, this is the story of the first vision that you have been taught. All right. The story goes on with Joseph Smith saying in his official version, my object in going to inquire of the Lord was to know which of all sects was right, that I might know which to join. No sooner, therefore, did I get possession of myself so as to be able to speak than I asked the personages that stood above me in the light which of all the sects was right. For at this time it never entered my heart that they were all wrong, and which I should join. I was answered that I must join none of them, for they were all wrong, and the personage who addressed me said that all their creeds were an abomination in his sight, that their professors were all corrupt, end quote. All right. In this official account, Joseph Smith mentions his age. He says he was 14, where he was living, Manchester, and that there was a great a revival in the area between the religions. He also states that he went to the grove to find out which church was true. Okay, let's start with the basics of this official story and work through these claims as we show the fraud that has been perpetrated upon you relative to the first vision. All right, first, the dating of 1820 when Joseph Smith was a 14-year-old boy. Microfilm records of road repairs prove that the Smiths could not have lived in the area described by Joseph until after April 1822, not when he was 14, but when he was 16. 
the only recorded and recognized revivals in the area based on newspaper and the church's conversion records occurred between 1824 and 1825 when Joseph would have been 17 years old, not 14. Property assessment records show that a cabin was built on the land that the Smith described between 1822 and 1823 when Joseph was between 16 and 17 years old, again, not 14. Every Mormon has been taught he was a 14-year-old boy. It's impossible based on these that he was 14. Remember, Joseph said that revivals took place uh, two years after they moved to Manchester area which would have made the year 1824 to 1825, and Joseph would have been a minimum of 18 to 19 years of age, not 14. Joseph's brother, William, who was one of the original 12 apostles of the church, said that, quote, the revival of the area was led by a Reverend Lane in 1823 when the prophet would have been 17, not 14. So every single thing is pointing to the fact that the 1820 age uh, of 14 and 18, the year 1820 is wrong. Even quoted by Gordon B. Hinckley, who says in 1820, a 14-year-old boy, it is an absolute fraudulent claim. All right. Additionally, church records of the Baptists, the Methodists, and the Presbyterians show a dramatic increase in 1824 as a result of revival from baptisms happening as a result of revival when Joseph was 17 or 18. Nothing was going on in 1820, 1821, or 1822 by way of revival. All right, based on Joseph Smith's AIDS claims versus the substantiated evidence, the story fails the test of authenticity with regard to his age. Even if there had been a first vision, Joseph Smith could not have been 14 years old. He had to have been at least 16 and was more probably 17 when the supposed version was to occur. This becomes very important because when Joseph was 17 years of age, it was 1823. And in 1823, guess what happens then according to church records? That's when the angel Moroni came to him in his bedroom and told him there's a gold plates buried in a hill, 1823. So this is important because you're going to see that most of the early Mormons believed that the first vision was Moroni coming to him when he was 17 because they had no idea of this God the Father and Jesus Christ visiting him. It was reconstructed over time. And, and the first vision to many Mormons, and I'm going to give you quotes to prove this, believed it was an angel who came to visit Joseph about what church to join, not God and not his son. And you're going to see this, okay? I suggest there is no first vision and that the actual first vision was actually the event that Joseph said an angel came to his bedroom when he was 17 to tell him where golden plates were buried. But for continuity, let's stay on task relative to Joseph Smith's claims. The first church-sanctioned vision, a version of the first vision, was published in a magazine or a newspaper called The Times and Season in 1842. Okay, so the first official LDS record of the first vision, meaning God the Father supposedly visiting, was printed 22 years after it happened in 1842. And Joseph said in this official version that he had confided in a minister about the vision and was told that it was the devil. He added, and I quote, listen to this, this is important. 
I soon found, however, that my telling the story excited a great deal of prejudice against me among the professors of religion and was the cause of great persecution, which continued to increase. And though I was an obscure boy only between 14 and 15 years of age, and my circumstance in life was to make me a boy of no consequence in the world, yet men of high standing would take sufficient to excite the public mind against me and to create a bitter persecution. And this was common among all the sects, all united to persecute me. Now, common to the LDS teachings, and you hear the story when you're a kid, is that Joseph, this poor 14-year-old boy, goes to the grove. He prays, God the Father and Jesus Christ appear to him. He goes to a minister innocently, and he says, this is what happened. The minister says, it's of the devil. And then quoting from here, Joseph said, all the ministers united the public against him to persecute him and to attack him. So we have another claim by Joseph Smith, which was provided 22 years after it supposedly occurred. And it was that back in 1820, men of high standing uh, brought about increased persecution, great persecution over time, sufficient to incite the public mind against him to bitter, persecu bitter persecution. Guess what? There is no record of any of this from any source saying that a first vision happened from any pastor it didn't happen from any journal, whether they're Mormon, whether they're Joseph Smith's mother or father or brothers. No one wrote in their journal that Joseph Smith had a vision of God the Father and Jesus Christ at 14 years of age. Nobody recorded that anybody at that age, no, autobiograph no uh, autobiography mentions it, no biography mentions it, where the town and the people and the papers were all over the fact that there was a guy who claimed gold plates were buried. Nobody mentions that he's that at 14 or or around that age that he sees a vision and that he was persecuted for it. nobody even joseph smith's enemies who were against him from the beginning never attack him for this supposed first vision you know why because he made it up he made it up to fit and to go back and make everything make sense doctrinally for the things he was teaching later and i'm going to show you how that happened even the first published mormon history Corroborated by Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery in 1834, ignored the event altogether. Okay, did you hear that? The first LDS uh, uh, church history ignored mentioning this thing they call the first vision altogether. Gordon B. Hinckley says the church's whole strength relies on the validity of this vision. And nobody in Mormonism really knew anything about it until 1838. It was supposed to have happened in 1820. The church was established in 1830. It wasn't until 18 years after that it supposedly happened that anybody starts to make mention of it. And who does it? Joseph. He starts to come up with these things that happened to him when he was really young. It just didn't. And here's the real clincher. Most of the early church and its leaders believe that the first vision was when Moroni came to visit him. They thought, based on the evidence, they were correct that either there was no first vision of God the Father or Jesus Christ, they didn't, they didn't really even address it, or they believed that the first vision was this angel Moroni. Now listen, listen closely to these quotes that I'm going to go through. In 1845, this is many years later, Lucy Max Smith, Joseph's mother, started her autobiography. In her preliminary draft, she made no mention about Joseph having ever had a first vision of God and Jesus. This is his mother writing her autobiography. She does recount, however, 
that on the third harvest, which occurred in 1823, that the family had discussed the contentions going on, going on between the churches and that Joseph that night had an angel appear to him and say, quote, I perceive that you were inquiring in your mind which church is true. There is not a true church on earth. Okay. So Joseph's mother in her biography or autobiography states that the only thing she states about a vision starting off from the bat is Moroni's visit in 1823 and that this angel Moroni told Joseph none of the churches were true and uh, to not join any of them. When Lucy Max Smith's biographical sketches was finally published in 1853, she personally said nothing about her son's claims to a first vision, but she did take a newspaper's account of a first vision and include it in there. They weren't her own words. Fawn Brody, a name many of you don't like, but was an excellent writer and researcher, wrote in No Man Knows My History, if, some, quote, if something happened that spring morning in 1820, it passed totally unnoticed in Joseph's hometown and apparently did not even fix in the minds of members of his own family. Joseph, I mean, George Albert Smith, apostle of the LDS Church, said in Journal of Discourses, 1863, listen to this quote of what this apostle of the church in 1863, after Joseph had been assassinated and they had moved to Utah, what he thought the first vision was. When, quote, when Joseph was, uh, Smith was about 14 or 15 years old, he went humbly before the Lord and inquired of him, and the Lord answered his prayer and revealed to Joseph, by the ministration of angels the true condition of the religious world. When the holy angel appeared, Joseph inquired as to which of all these denominations was right and which he should join and was told that they were all wrong. Okay, you want more? I got some good ones. In 1834, Oliver Cowdery, who was ascribed to Joseph Smith on the Book of Mormon, published the first Mormon history in the LDS paper Messenger and Advocate in Kirtland, Ohio. He began Smith's story in 1823, not in 1820, with the boy in his bedroom being visited by Angel Moroni, not God the Father, not Jesus Christ. Oliver Cowdery starts Joseph Smith's history off in this newspaper by discussing his vision of the angel Moroni. In 1823, he never even mentions anything about God the Father in 1820 or Jesus Christ. He wrote that during a time of religious excitement that Smith prayed to know if a supreme being did exist and to have the assurance of that. And then Joseph and then Cowdery went on to write that Joseph's prayer was answered on September 21st in 1823 when an angel appeared to him and his prayers were answered. All right, this is far different from the uh, totally fabricated uh, first vision account. LDS Apostle George Albert Smith, 1869, said of the first vision, he sought the Lord day and night and was in, enlightened by the vision of the holy angel. When this personage appeared to him of his first inquiry, which of the denominations of Christianity in the vicinity was right? Orson Pratt taught in 1869, quote, by and by the obscure individual, the young man rose up and in the midst of all Christendom, proclaimed the startling news that God had sent an angel to him and four years thereafter was visited by a holy angel again. No mention of God the Father, no mention of Jesus Christ, but holy angels visiting him and giving him these messages. LDS Apostle John Taylor, speaking in 1879, identifies the personages as angels, quote, Joseph asked the angel which of the sects was right and the angel merely told him to join none of them.
The evidence seems to indicate that the people alive during Joseph Smith's time were under the impression that the first vision was in 1823 when the angel Moroni came and said there's gold plates buried in a hill and they had no or little knowledge of another first vision that Joseph Smith fabricated later on in his life. But this is only the beginning. Here's the grand clincher. I know I've talked a lot, but here's the big clincher. In 1965, BYU graduate student Paul Cheeseman published an account of the first vision which was, which was recorded in Joseph Smith's own handwriting. Okay, So there's no question of authenticity by the LDS in the audience. This document has been authenticated by BYU scholars and other handwriting scholars, James B. Allen and Dean L. Jesse of the Church Historian's Office as authentic as his handwriting. Okay, and now uh, I have to ask you, if you had seen God the Father, God the Father and Jesus Christ, like the official account tries to say now, would you, how would you describe this when you wrote it out? Let me read to you what Joseph Smith wrote. This is his own handwriting of the first vision. The Lord heard my cry in the wilderness, and while in the attitude of calling upon the Lord in the 16th year of my age... A pillar of light above the brightness of the sun at noonday come down from above and rested upon me, and I was filled with the Spirit of God. And the Lord opened the heavens upon me, and I saw the Lord. And he spake unto me, saying, Joseph, thy sons are forgiven thee. Go thy way, walk in my statutes, and keep my commandments. Behold, I am the Lord of glory. I was crucified for the world that all who believe on my name may have eternal life. Behold, the world life in sin at this time and none doeth good. No, not one. They have turned aside from the gospel. Keep not my commandments. They draw near to me with their lips, but their hearts are far from with me. And my anger is kindled against the inhabitants of the earth to visit them according to the ungodliness and to bring to pass that which they have spoken of by the mouth of the prophets and apostles. Behold, and lo, I come quickly as it was written of me in the cloud clothed in the glory of my father. He doesn't mention God the Father. He says nothing about two personages. He says nothing about God having a body of flesh and bone. He says nothing about all the churches being an abomination in God's sight. He has nothing of God saying, this is my beloved son. This is his own handwritten version. All he says is, I saw the Lord and who was the Lord? The Lord identifies himself as who was crucified. Now, you have to understand that in the 1820s, I could give you, if we had time, five quotes from Alexander Campbell and a number of other religious leaders who also testified to having visions of Jesus Christ. Nobody had a vision of God the Father, too, except Joseph. And remember, I've talked about him outconning the cons. He always takes it another step. He didn't originally, but later on, as he started studying all this mystical stuff, he came to the conclusion that God had a body. And so he incorporated this idea back into his first vision accounts, but they were never in the originals. And the originals came out far later. We have big problems with this thing they call the first vision. And it's gotten Latter-day Saints to believe that God has a body of flesh and bone when the scripture says God is a spirit. Jesus says God is a spirit. He says that in the infallible word and you will sit there and listen to this regurgitated story that God has a body because some kid says so after the fact, 22 years after the fact. You've been conned. I am so passionate about this because you can read it. You've been conned. 
And it's not right. It goes against the word of God. You've been led to believe in a fictitious God. What greater victory could Satan have than to get you believe that God has a body so that you can become like him and become a God later? It's a terrible thing and it happened in steps. All right. All of this was developed later. It is from the first vision that Mormons believe the absolute non-biblical stance, as I said, that God has a body of flesh and bones. All of Joseph Smith's, there's six of them at least, are progressive in nature. It starts off vague. It goes to, you want to hear another one really quickly? Here's another one. I called upon the Lord in mighty prayer. A pillar of fire appeared above my, it presently rested upon me and filled me with joy unspeakable. A personage appeared in the midst of the pillar of flame, which was spread all around, and yet nothing consumed. Another personage soon appeared like unto the first. He said to me, thy sins are forgiven thee. He testified unto me that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and I saw many angels in this vision. I was about 14 years old when I received this communication. So we see changes right there. Now angels... Plenty of angels are appearing and we have personages who are saying, testifying of Jesus, but not saying they're Jesus and not saying that they're God the Father. Everything is convoluted to fit the ideas he was having at the time. It's interesting to note that Joseph Smith 1835 diary, where that last quote came from, is used as the basis for much of church history, but they edit it. They take it and they change it and they take out things. For instance, in that version, what they take out the visitation of angels in there and they call it my first vision. Joseph in his diary says, I had my first visitation of angels when I was about 14. That's what it says of angels. The church has taken it and said, my first vision, period. Not visitation of angels, but my first vision to make you believe that he was talking about when he was 14 years old and God the Father visiting him. Let me summarize and we'll go to the phones. I've talked a lot. 18 years after the first vision was supposed to have occurred, Joseph Smith suddenly provided the world with some details of the event. There is no supportive witness to Joseph Smith's claim of having a first vision in 1820, not from family, not from personal journals, not from newspapers, not from an enemy of Joseph Smith's. Nobody said this kid was walking around saying this, all right? Based on the mound of solid evidence, the details regarding his age and the religious environment are completely spurious. LDS leaders have taught for decades after his death that the first visitation was actually angels that visited him, maybe Moroni and maybe others, but not God and not Jesus Christ. The 1834 LDS Church Magazine printed an account of the beginnings of Mormonism, but did not mention Joseph Smith's 1820 supposed visitation of God the Father and Jesus Christ, but started the LDS Church history with Moroni's visit in 1823. In 1835, Joseph related a vision in the grove, but only mentions angels appearing, not Jesus and God the Father. Early newspaper articles which criticized Joseph Smith never mentioned the 1820 first vision or the idea that God the Father has a flesh and bone. Unlike Gordon B. Hinckley, early LDS leaders never used the first vision as proof that God had a body of flesh and bones. Never. They waited until the whole thing had been reconfigured, rewritten, re-edited, and now the prophets today who are supposed to speak to you truth tell you that the first vision of 1820 taught that Joseph saw God the Father with a body of flesh and bones and his son, and it's a complete fabrication. Uh, if, as Gordon B. Hinckley says, the whole strength of Mormonism rests on the validity of the first vision, I would look to a far less suspect account of God's truth and turn to the Bible. My brothers and sisters, let's go to the phone 
801-973-TV20, 1-801-973-8820. We have Mark, a first-time caller, on line one from Salt Lake City. Mark, you're on Heart of the Matter. Yes, Sean. Yes. I just wanted to be the first to thank you for the show. You're welcome. This is, you're absolutely right. This is the most important one you've done so far. Yeah. Thanks, Mark. I really appreciate it. Uh-huh. And I'm a big fan of the black leather jacket, by the way. All right. A fan of the jacket. Mm-hmm. Uh, thanks a lot, Mark. You take care. Uh, have a good one. God bless you. God bless you. Bye-bye. We're going to Chris, first-time caller uh, from Sandy. Chris, you're on Heart of the Matter. Chris. Go. You're on Heart of the Matter, man. All right. How's it going, Sean? I'm going well. How are you? Good. I've been watching your show for a while now, and uh, I'm a big fan. I actually met you in studio a couple weeks ago. Awesome. But I'm wondering, as a seeker, after watching your show tonight, why would anyone want to pursue the LDS religion? I don't know. I'm, we're trying to get more people to watch the show. I mean, I don't know, except people who don't know the facts have missionaries knock on their door, they invite them to church, they go to church, and when they walk in that church, they're embraced, they're invited, they're, people ask them to dinner, they see it's orderly, the kids have good programs, and they get caught up in the culture without really knowing the doctrines. And once you're really in there, good and solid, then those doctrines start seeping in. And people, you know, they don't know the truth, they can't see the truth, they can't hear false, they just go and they belong to a religion instead of a relationship with the Lord. Mm, that makes sense. That's all I could think of, my brother. All right, well, I guess that's good enough. Hey, thanks for calling. Thanks for watching. Yeah, for sure. See you again. All right, Chris. Bye-bye. We're going to Stephanie. It says Stephanie, but we're, uh, we're going to Stephanie from Murray, first-time caller. Is it Stephanie? Yeah, this is Stephanie. Hey, Stephanie. You're on Heart of the Matter. Hey, uh, God bless you. First, I wanted to tell you that I've been studying all my on my own little journey, and I've discovered there's there's a lot of there's a lot of history that the LDS religion denies yeah. about about our angels and about our other little things. I've studied a lot of things. I mean, I got studied like about the Jewish Bible and everything like that. I mean, they even deny uh, they don't even know about those the uh, the sucky pus called Lilla. And I really I've been really studying hardcore about a lot of things, you know, about everything. So yeah. I've been really been doing all my own study and everything like that, and they have been sugarcoating a lot of things. Yeah, and you know what, Stephanie? You know what the problem is? <laughs> the problem is is uh, it leads to embarrassment right and left. Mitt Romney, you know, he stands out against polygamy, and now we see in the paper that he comes from a polygamous family, and he could have very easily just stood up for what the church believed. Very easily said, our church believes this. I'm a member of the church. I believe. They won't stand up and say what they believe because that, that's another form of deception. Mm -hmm. and, and, and the deception is what keeps people joining the church because they don't know the facts. And it's just not right. It's not right, Gordon B. Hinckley. You're not right. You get up and you tell them the historical facts of the first vision. All right. Thank you, Stephanie. No problem. I'm just letting you know everybody has to study on their own turn. Yeah, they do. You take care. God bless. You too. Bye-bye. All right, we're going to Aaron, first-time caller on line one. Aaron from Clearfield. You're on Heart of the Matter. Aaron? Aaron? By the way, that's my middle name. Aaron? 
Aaron's gone. We're going to Paul, first time caller on line two. Paul, you're on Heart of the Matter. Paul? Hello there. Hey, Paul. Hey, uh, first time caller. How you doing, man? Well, I've been watching since uh, last August or so. Oh. And uh, I read, for the first time in my life, the New Testament. Awesome. And I think that most people who are Mormons have never read the New Testament. Yeah. And so my thing is, where Jesus had like 500 witnesses to his resurrection, yeah. there should be no question in anyone's mind, and there should be no Mormonism, period. Yeah. Because he was the last prophet. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's how I see it, anyway. And I think most Mormons haven't read the New Testament. Yeah. They just get stuck in their little book of Mormon. Yeah. Well, let me say this, Paul, and because I get letters from or emails from people on the Mormon study habits, and they will say, I do read the New Testament, and there's some LDS who can say, I've read it. But the difference is, is do you have the eyes to see and the ears to hear what it's saying? I read the New Testament as a Latter-day Saint missionary and after, but I was not born again, and so I read it with LDS eyes, and I saw what I wanted to see and believed what I wanted to believe and thought I was in perfect standing. It wasn't until I realized I needed Jesus to save me from my sin that I was born again and then when I read it I said wow this is completely different than anything I've ever seen before did you have that experience exactly and then now I've got another question all right how about the box of bones that were just found and they're making a movie out of <laughs> is that the are you talking about the tomb yeah yeah well you know uh, I think that what, what's that I see that's a beauty eh that's a beauty. I can't wait to see what that turns out to be. I don't believe uh, anything at first when I first hear it, and we'll see what that guy who did Titanic comes up with. I think he's trying to compete with Mel Gibson's uh, box office tallies. I, well, I don't think he can fight with 500 witnesses at the time of Christ. I know. And when he was resurrected. Excellent, Paul. Thanks so much for the call. Well, thank you. I, I love you. I enjoy the program. Thanks. Hey, come out to Christ Evangelical Church next Wednesday night at 7 o'clock. I'd love to meet you. Well, where's that at? Christ Evangelical Church. It's in Provo Orem area and uh, 7 o'clock. On what day? Uh, Wednesday the 7th. Wednesday the 7th. Yep, next week. Okay. All right, man. See you then. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. You know, I want you to know that, uh, what do I want you to know? I had a thought while Paul was talking, and now it's escaped me. Let's go to Cole, first-time caller in South Ogden. Cole, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hey, how you doing, Sean? Doing well. How are you? Doing really good. Um, I, I was listening to your show. This is the first time I, I saw it tonight, and oh. um, I was um, sitting there and thinking, um, you know, we're not here to, you know, you know, bash or go back and forth. Yeah. So, um, one thing I, I kind of think about is when Jesus Christ was on the earth. Yeah. And, you know, how people said certain things to him of how, you know, he did his power by the power of Beth, Beth Zuzza and how he wasn't Jesus the Christ and stuff. You know, yeah. how the Pharisees and Sadducees said y that. And yeah. One thing I know is true is I know that when, when Peter and the apostles were here on earth, they knew that Jesus was the Christ through the Holy Ghost. 
Uh-huh. And that's how Peter came to know. Being with me, I know that reading the Book of Mormon, I, I personally know that it's true. Not uh-huh. because of, of facts or because or of the things, but because Holy Father has personally let me let me felt that. And he has let me know that that is true. And I think the the greatest witness that we can receive is from God. Okay, let me ask you something, just so that we can we can be on the same page. And this happens a lot when Latter-day Saints call the show, and they bear their testimony that they know, for instance, the Book of Mormon is true. How, how is your knowledge that you say God has given you, that the Book of Mormon is true, different from the uh, Muslim who God has told him that the Koran is true? Well, that's, that's a good question. I got that a lot in... Well, answer it. So you got to be quick because we're on live air and you got to speak quickly. Whatever persuades us to believe in God or to help us do what is right, we know that what Jesus Christ taught is to love one another and to strive to do that, then we can know it's from God because everything that is good comes from God. And when I read the Book of Mormon, it made me want to... Okay. People it made me want to do what was right, what Christ did, to live what Christ taught. Okay. The gifts of the Spirit are not the actions. The fruits of the Spirit are not the Our actions. Our love, peace, long-suffering... That's right. Those are not actions. Those are, those are characteristics of a follower. So what you're describing here is you're saying that you can look at people and you can tell that they have that... No, I, 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 no, I, didn't, I didn't say that. I, I said that... That's what it made me made me want to do. So, but, is a Muslim then who is full of love for other people, who's very humanitarian, but doesn't necessarily buy that Jesus is the final prophet? He's going to inherit the same. Uh, he's going to have salvation. What case of that again? I'm sorry. Is a Muslim going to have salvation? Who has the gift of love for humanity in him? Well, I mean, we're not God. You know, God's going to. Well, what's your opinion? My opinion is how my father, he knows... Okay, what about the Dalai Lama, who does not accept Jesus Christ, who is filled with good works? Does the Dalai Lama, is he going to be... Because what you're saying is, it's your revelation that God has given you in your life that makes everything okay, and then if it manifests itself in your life as love, then therefore that's a sign that you've been given truth. So the Dalai Lama is a very loving guy. But he does not in any way, shape, or form recognize Jesus as the Savior. Are you saying he is in a, just as fine shape because God revealed this to him and it manifests itself as love in him? That, that's the thing. I mean, like, every prophet has a fruit. Like, Moses' fruit was the Ten Commandments. Again, just answer the Dalai Lama question. I, I never heard of that. I don't know about Dalai Lama is a very fruitful man in love and gifts to other people. Okay? But he does not accept Jesus Christ. Well, the thing is, is every prophet, they have, they have a certain fruit. Like Moses' fruit was the Ten Commandments. I still by not... living by them, we can know that they're from God. Okay, so you're saying that the Dalai Lama, we can say he's from God because his fruits well, no, are... No, you're, you're, you're fitting words. Well, put words in my mouth then. Tell me what you're saying. You keep re-answering it with a question, with a reference to Moses. What are you saying? I'm, I'm saying that Holy Father has provided a way for us to know that Joseph Smith was a prophet through reading the Book of Mormon. Okay. Listen, uh, you know what? Do me a favor, because we got to move on to other callers. Watch our shows coming up. We're going to have probably four or five of them on the Book of Mormon. Before you lay claim that you know this book is true, you watch our five shows about what the Book of Mormon, re- its contents are and where it came from, and then you call and say you still know it's true. But the thing is, can I, can I answer this? Got to be quick. Got to be quick. Go ahead. When Jesus Christ was here, I know that in the Bible... You can go where the Pharisees always tried to contradict him and how they said that he was a liar and how they had things 
to try to prove him wrong. Yeah. But I know very well that it's always through the Holy Ghost, and that's something the Heavenly Father will let anyone feel to know that is true. Yeah, but but you know what? You're not privy to the you're not privy to the constant gift of the Holy Ghost until you've been spiritually born again. You can't, the Holy Ghost is not going to thrive with you constantly throughout your life unless you've been born again. You don't have spiritual eyes until you've been born again, and the Holy Ghost dwells in you. There's the epi, and that's that's when it's the the Holy Ghost is in the Greek that's dwelling. I, I'm getting carried away, but I, I want to tell you that the Holy Ghost has to come into you for you to have Him with you. Well, yet, yet, like in the, I know in the Bible, it talks. Listen, you're gonna have to email me, call me back, and because uh, the call's gone on too long. I'm sorry, I'm not being rude. I do this with everybody. We got to keep the show moving. So call us hey, back. Tom, we'll see you, buddy. All right, thanks. All bye right. bye. All right, Stephanie, uh, you're on Heart of the Matter. Stephanie from Salt Lake City. Stephanie. Yes. You're on the air. Hi, Sean. Hi. I have a question that I'm hoping you might be able to clarify for me. I'll try. And it might be really easy and stupid. But <laughs> I doubt it. Go okay. ahead. When I hear you say born again, yeah, I can completely understand that in my heart. Uh-huh. But when I hear born again Mormon, uh-huh. I get confused. Is that meaning living in the culture without carrying their beliefs? It's a good question. It's not a stupid question. And it's a timely to, that you've asked it today, so let me explain it. All right, born-again Mormon, it simply refers to two things. One, I was a Latter-day Saint when I was born again. Therefore, I was a born-again Mormon. And the reason that we use that title is because we use Jesus and spiritual rebirth as the horse before the cart. That horse leads, and spiritual rebirth, I try to lead with Mormons becoming spiritually reborn. I don't try to say you got to leave your church right now or this or that when I'm in one-to-one, one-on-one conversation. It's as a Latter-day Saint, you can be born again. Well, how do I do that? And then we just go through how they can be born again. And then when they are, we leave it up to God to lead them out. And I have found in, in, in my experience that most people are let out rather quickly. It Absolutely. took me for... Well, tonight you used, for me, a key word by referring to it as a culture. Yeah. Because... That's it in a nutshell. It is. And, and it is, I mean, it is a culture. It, it's a way of life, but you're right. It, it's just lacking one key element. And I know that because my entire life of being um, a raised LDS individual, you would ask questions, and kind of like the last caller, you don't really get no. the answer. It's always based on knowing right. and understanding that we don't know in yeah. terms of that kind of vocabulary. It's hard to communicate. But I remember at one point I did ask, bottom line, what is the difference here? What is it that we supposedly believe in? And the reply was, well, we believe in the living Christ. Hmm. And it was at that moment where I realized I am in the wrong spot. Uh-huh. The living Christ, that suddenly to me was such a contradictory statement of everything else that supposedly yeah. I was being raised to seek out, if right. that makes any sense. It makes total sense. I understand what you're saying. Their, okay. their, their claim did not meet the evidence that they, su- they support it with. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Stephanie, appreciate helping. your call. Thank you so much. No problem. Okay, bye. Bye-bye. All right, we're going to Karen, first-time caller on line two. Karen, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hi. Hi. Um, I had a question about the curse of Cain. Yeah. I had something come up at my daughter's school, and... Uh, it was brought out in class, and I didn't think it was appropriate. I didn't understand it. Could you go into that a little wow, bit? Wow, it was brought out in class by a teacher? 
Yeah. Wow, you ought to go down and have a nice talk with that teacher. Yeah. First of all, uh, it refers to um, an older LDS practice. Many LDS have abandoned it, but I don't think there's been an official uh, abandonment of the, not, not practice, doctrine. And the doctrine was that in, a pre in the pre-existence where all the people who lived on this earth lived, um, God presented a plan, and the plan was to come down to earth and get bodies. And Satan said no, and Jesus said yes. And long story short, most of us who accepted the plan came down here and got bodies, but the spirits in heaven who weren't sure that God was right and weren't sure if Jesus and Satan were right, they're kind of fence-sitters, they came down and they are the black race. And wow. that, that race comes through uh, Cain who committed the first murder and it passes through him and then through Egyptus, through the flood and through all these different lines. And bottom line, it's a curse of black skin on people for not having been valiant in their first estate, which was a spiritual estate before coming to this earth. That's the mythology of Mormonism relative to uh, a pre-existence and blacks and the curse of Cain. Why black skin? Why not freckles or poor, uh, poor vision? Uh, well, you know, if really bottom line, it fits right into the prejudice that occurred back then. Latter-day Saints will say, well, Mormon, Mormons would always let blacks join the church. And so they defend themselves that way. And that's true. They could always be members of the church, but they couldn't hold the priesthood of Mormonism. So essentially they were banned until 1976 or 78 when Spencer W. Kimball came up with a revelation that, hey, all worthy male members can now have the priesthood and it changed. So uh, it was just really a thing for the church to survive. And the whole United States at that time in the 1820s was still prejudiced and they still had slavery. And so there was a whole battle there in the church. The revelation decided with the, um, the culture of the day. Well, okay. Uh guy at work told me that that's what they that he still believes that and that's what they preach or oh yeah they still I mean, the hardcore guys still believe it just like the hardcore guys still believe polygamy absolutely oh. i'm sorry that your child experienced that i hope you're able to clear that up with a teacher thank you you're welcome thanks for watching bye-bye bye-bye we're going to robert on line three from salt lake city robert you're on heart of the matter you're welcome hi sean hey uh, I wanted to ask, uh, I'm a Christian myself, and I try to talk to LDS friends and everything, tell them that, you know, I tell them about all the false things, and I try to minister to them myself, but they say, well, they have Christ, so it doesn't, those are just little things, it doesn't matter, because they still have Christ, but yeah. I try to convince them otherwise. Yeah. How do you, I don't know. Well... <laughs> That's why we really focus on spiritual rebirth, Robert, because um, when they say, well, we have Jesus, we believe in Jesus, and again, for the audience's sake, they believe in Jesus to a certain extent. They don't believe in grace. And so really, they just take the whole real beauty of Jesus and throw it out the window. They believe that he atoned, but they don't believe in grace. But so I focus on spirits. Oh, you do believe in Jesus? Yeah, well, of course. Well, have you been spiritually reborn? Well, you know, that takes a long time. And then I go through the scriptures of why they need to be reborn and how it's not the way the LDS churches teaches it over a period of their life. But that spiritual rebirth comes by confession and belief and admitting that you're a sinner and you can only be saved by grace. If, I, if you go down that road, you're going to have more success than any of the uh, topical stuff that we're doing on the show this year with them. It's just stuff to spark their interest, make them mad, and, and then maybe search out their religion for the truth. Yeah. Hopefully right. that helps somewhat. 
Yeah, definitely. I just it's hard to try to convince him that Christ is the reason and not all the works and I don't know. It's, yeah, it is. And it's going to be prayer. And you're planting seeds. I say this all the time. You're planting seeds that will be harvested in decades, not in days, months, and years. Definitely. Yeah. Appreciate it, Sean. Thanks. Keep going, brother. Take care. Right, you too. Bye. Bye-bye. We are going to Enoch in West Valley City. Enoch on line one, a first-time caller. Enoch, you're in Heart of the Matter. You have two minutes left. Okay. Hi, Sean. Hi. Um, I just had a comment, just a uh, real quick background. Um, I came from a polygamous sect of the Mormon Church, mm. which followed basically Joseph Smith's teachings to about the T. Yeah. Um, but I left about three years, well, left about five years ago, got saved a few years ago. Praise God. Uh, most of my family has joined the LDS Church. And my comment is, the reason I think that people join the LDS Church is, is it sounds good, you know, it becomes about me. Yeah, it does. About what Jesus did. And, you know, it's about what I can do, what I can become. Yeah. And. Yeah, you're very right about that. It's, a, it's an astute uh, assessment because it's very me-centered. Even though they do a lot of outward things, you can ask them, why do you do these outward works? And they say, I want the blessings. Yeah, you know, exactly. It's all me-centered, building me up. And uh, you're right about that. Good point. And a and, uh, quick example is um, from my experience, I've seen them prey on people's emotions, like oh, yeah. people that have lost family members. Yeah. They, well, you can be with your family forever, you know, if you join the church and do all these ordinances and things. And... Yeah. Hey, I really appreciate your call. We're down to the last seconds. All right. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Well... Another uh, show. I'm sorry it took so much time on the first vision. Uh, Next week, we're going to talk about how the first vision uh, created a false sense of who God was relative to the Bible. You'll be amazed at what the doctrines of Joseph were about God originally, and then how they changed over time and morphed into this God who now has a body. So uh, also to get you thinking for the future, um, we can uh, look forward to the Book of Mormon uh, shows that are going to take about four weeks. And polygamy is going to take a solid three to four weeks, too. You're not going to believe the stuff that's coming out with that. So Micah, you keep going, brother. And Becky, you hang in there. We love you. All the rest of you, thank you for tuning in. Pray to God for your neighbors, for yourselves, and for the show. See you next week.